Turn with me in your Bibles again to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We'll read again that opening chapter. We're going to consider the verses 6 through 9 this morning. Just by way of reminder in terms of going forward, next Sunday as we celebrate Lord's Supper, our text will be from Romans 12. You can remember that we are studying those aphorisms, those statements of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12. I think we're still in verse 9. Hate what is evil, I believe, is our next message. Hate what is evil from Romans chapter 12, verse 9. But today we'll consider Galatians 1. Hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here are the words of our text. These are these from verse 6 to verse 9. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. That's the end of our uh, text. We'll continue reading. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother." I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Again, our text is the verses 6 through 9 of Galatians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, 
Have you ever looked at someone and either thought to yourself or maybe even said, what were you thinking? I have a feeling that in our congregation, the police officers, the medical professionals, I have a feeling that they could uh, offer to us a, a, a lot of examples of that sort of thing. They're treating a patient, they're making an arrest, and they're saying, what were you thinking? But more close to home, my guess is that our moms have probably said that to us maybe too many times. Moms tend to say that sort of thing, don't they? They ask us when we've done something we shouldn't have, when we maybe made a mistake or, or we acted in a way that was wrong. And, and, and then mom says, what were you thinking? And, and just by way of um, note, the, the right answer at that point is to say nothing. It's never to say what you were thinking. Because what you were thinking was wrong. That's the point. Uh, it's always wrong. When you've made a mistake, it's always wrong. And for good reason. It's good reason for why it's always wrong. See, when we make mistakes, when we do foolish things, in our own head, it makes sense. Like we reason it out. We think about it. It looks like it'll be fun. It looks like it'll be a good time. We think that if we, if we do this thing that, that people will like us or people will think we're cool, that's so often the, what motivates foolish decisions, isn't it? Trying to please other people. But in the end, it doesn't work. In the end, foolish decisions disobedience, um, sin, never really makes sense. That's the thing about sin. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't add up. You think about all the way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve and the serpent, the world that God had made, the promise that God had made about life. And the serpent said, just eat the fruit and, and, and you'll become gods. I mean, it was the most foolish thing. And we traded all of the blessing. We traded fellowship with God. We traded peace in his kingdom. We traded health and well-being for sickness and disease. We traded life for death. We traded joy for pain. We traded all of these things for a bite of a fruit. It doesn't make sense. It does, it's not reasonable. It, there, there, there's no logic that can make it work out because sin is always illogical. It's always bad, always harmful, never builds up, never blesses. To be sure, there are degrees of dumb. Well, we ought to understand that too. Right? When, when we're driving somewhere and, and dad says, I know a shortcut, that's only a little bit dumb. But if dad turns around and goes the wrong way, that's a lot dumb. There's a difference between getting off the path a little bit and getting off the path completely. And that's that's what the Galatians had done. They had done a very dumb thing. They had done something that was extremely foolish and that made absolutely no sense. Listen to how Paul begins. Not in Galatians 1, but just about in any other letter he writes. Listen to Romans 1. Remember how the, the openings to letters are basically all the same. You identify the author Paul, and then you, you identify the recipient, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, and then there's that uh, uh, salutation, grace and peace to you in some respect, and then almost invariably this is what follows. In Romans 1, what follows all of that is this, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I always thank God for you because of the grace given you. Ephesians 1. 
Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Are you beginning to note a pattern? Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God every time I remember you. On and on it goes. Paul introduces himself, introduces who he's speaking to, gives to them that grace and peace, and then thanks God for them. That's the pattern of Paul's letters, except in Galatians. Grace and peace, he says, to you, but I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I'm astonished, says Paul. It's a strong word. It's a word that expresses shock and dismay. These Galatian Christians, these whom Paul had ministered to and who had come to the faith, put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, were deserting, says Paul. Deserting is another strong word. It's a word that was used to describe soldiers who have fled their post, leaving their comrades in arms, leaving their duty. It was a terrible thing to be considered a deserter, to be described that way. To be called that you had nowhere to go. No society would accept you as a deserter from your post. And so Paul is astonished at their terrible act of deserting the one who had called them. That's the worst of it all. That's what needs to impress itself upon us. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting what? Theology? Doctrine? Confessional truths? Oh no, says Paul. I'm astonished you're deserting God, the one who called you by the grace of Christ. That's really what makes these opening words of Paul so very troubling. So ver- They ought to make us sit up and pay attention. Here are fellow believers, fellow churchgoers. This is a group of churches, an entire community of believers in Galatia. They're all gathering for worship on Sunday in their various places of worship. And Paul says, you have deserted God. You are not worshiping God. You've left Him. You've left. God, what a thing to say of someone. God, who is the one who not only creates, sustains, and governs all of life so that we are in the palm of his hand at every moment of every day. That's the foolishness, right? Of Adam and Eve's sin. Adam and Eve's sin tried to get out of God's care, tried to escape God's claim, tried to get out of his hands. How are you going to get out of God's hand? The God who is. The God who made everything. Imagine rising up against this God and thinking you can war against Him. Thinking you can win a fight against Him. He is the infinite, almighty, glorious God. This isn't Thor. This isn't some God of the humanity. Some God of the nations. This isn't some God you can defeat with some infinity stones and whatever else. He is, your existence is dependent upon Him. If He chooses that you no longer exist, all He has to do is think it. You no longer exist. He doesn't have to do anything. Every hair on your head answers His call. Can you imagine what foolishness it must be then to say to this God, I want nothing to do with you. I don't want to worship you. I don't want to serve you. And now remember that this is the God who not only made them and sustained them, 
but who had called them by the grace of Christ Jesus. This is the one who had come to them and given them the promise of salvation, the hope of eternal life, the power of forgiveness. And these people, says Paul, were rejecting, were deserting that God. These church-going, pious, living, committed-to-God people were rejecting God. Notice that. Notice that. This is not some unbelieving people that want nothing to do with God, that don't go to church, that don't sing praises to the Lord, that don't listen to the Word proclaimed. This letter is written to churches, to a company of believers. Meaning that, that, that it's possible. It's possible for a group of, of Christian people, Christian in the broad sense of the word, people that say, that claim to know and love the Lord, it is entirely possible that they should reject God even while they worship, even while they believe. You need to let that penetrate because that's a profound and disturbing truth. A powerful warning to every and any believer and church community that Paul issues in this text. Saying that it is possible for even the church to reject God. Can you begin to appreciate why Paul's letter starts with such passion? with such concern, with such desire for these people. He, he sees them hurtling into judgment and he cries out to, to save them from what they're doing. And again, note that it, the issue here is not that these Christians had some technical issue wrong, some finer theological reformed doctrine wrong, I mean, too quickly, that is what divides us, isn't it? Too quickly, we make our non-essential issues essential. You remember Augustine's aphorism, Augustine's words, that in all things essential unity, in all things non-essential uh, uh, liberty, and in everything charity. So there are some things you've got to be absolutely square on. There are other things you don't. No matter what, be nice. Be loving. Too often, and also in these days, and in part because of the strain and stress we're under, we allow the divisions of non-essential things to separate us. We shouldn't do that. We should fight against that. We can discuss, debate, argue passionately, but at the end, shake each other's hands, give each other a hug. If you prefer embracing to acknowledge that we are one. That we are one on all things essential. But you see, that's the point. Paul's concern was that the Galatians had not or had left the essential truths. The issue for Paul is not that these Christians had rejected some point of doctrine, but that they had rejected God. That they had deserted Him and His saving plan. That may be surprising again to us. 
that Paul should be so focused on a doctrinal point. More often than not, don't you think that when we meet somebody, if they claim to be a Christian, we don't examine their theology to see if they're genuinely a believer. We tend to judge their morality. We tend to say, well, if that person lives a Christian life, then they are a Christian. And it doesn't matter what they believe if they're nice people. But what if it's the other way around? What if, like in the Corinthian church, you can have a church full of really bad people doing really bad things, but Paul can say, I'm thankful for you because you rest in the saving work of God in Jesus Christ. But here in a church that was probably a very pious, a very moral, a very obedient church. This is a group of people that believed they had to earn salvation, that they had to live the Christian life perfectly, that they had to do everything right. This was a church that was filled with really, really obedient, godly people. And Paul says, I can't believe you're deserting God. In our experience, it's the other way around, isn't it? And we do well to reflect on that. We we ought to ask ourselves why it is we think that. I think we think that at least in part because we live in a society that's anti-intellectual. We live in a culture of relativism, a culture in which arguments, words, logic don't really matter, where no one can be right, where no truth is sovereign, where it's all personal opinion. And we can attempt to take this attitude into the faith, saying, look, they're nice people, they're sincere, what could be wrong with them? And to be sure, we ought to always be gracious. We ought to always be uh, compassionate. We ought to always be considerate. And we ought to recognize that not, not all doctrinal disputes are of the same caliber. And we'll see why this particular one was so concerning. But what we ought to appreciate is Paul is so concerned because these people believed something that produced a rejection of God in their hearts. They didn't think that. They didn't know that. They believed that they were worshiping God. But Paul, the apostle, appointed by God, revealed to by Jesus Christ, says, you are deserting God. That ought to make us all sit up and take notice and ask ourselves, what is it that these people had done so wrong? What was the issue that they had failed to to follow that led them to such a terrible place? How had they come to this place? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? He says that they are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. That's interesting the way that he describes uh, what the issue is and how he doesn't describe the issue. He, He says, for example, that that it's a different gospel. A a different gospel that is no gospel at all. It's it's a bit of a play on words, isn't it? Because when we think of the gospel, we think of the call to faith. We think of the, the call to surrender our lives to the Lord, and that's a good way for us to understand the gospel. But the gospel, by, by definition, is is you, you might say also just good news, isn't it? That it's good news. Good news of God having accomplished for you the salvation of your life through the death of His Son upon the cross. It's good news because you're free, you're delivered, you're, you're saved. It's good news because you don't have to do anything in order to enjoy this. 
It's good news. But when you have a different gospel that is a different call to to live a different life, says Paul, then that different gospel is no gospel at all. That, That different call is not good news anymore because it's no longer about what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's now a twisted, a perverted gospel that some people are promoting. Some people, it's interesting, Paul undoubtedly knows exactly who's teaching these things to these churches. He probably knows their names. But he doesn't list their names, does he? He doesn't specify them. He says, rather, some people. He's purposefully generic, anonymous. And, 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 and probably for this reason, because he didn't want his readers to focus on the person that was speaking the lie to them, He didn't want to, to, as so often is done in our day, argue against the man. That's that's so often what happens, isn't it? When you have an argument with someone in politics, it happens all the time. right? Instead of saying, I disagree with you and here's why, here's the reason your argument is wrong, what we do is we say, you're a bad person and therefore you're wrong. That has nothing to do with whether we're right or wrong. You could be absolutely the worst person in the world and still be right. It's not who you are that makes your argument, your truth, right. It is God and His revelation that makes your truth right. When the devils said to Jesus, we know who you are, Son of God, they were really bad. They were also very right. And Paul doesn't want to fall into that trap of saying, look, those are bad people. Don't trust those people. Don't listen to those people. He wants the churches of Galatia to think about what they're saying. Listen to what they're teaching. Hear what it is that they're promoting. They're promoting a a perverted gospel of Jesus Christ. That word perverted has a very specific sense and meaning in Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, where the apostle Peter preaches the Pentecost sermon in verse 20, he quotes from the book of Joel. And there he says in verse 20, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. The sun will be turned, turned, perverted is another way. It's the same word as we find in our text. It's a word that describes an absolute turnaround, a change from one thing to another. It's not a slight deviation. It's not a going off the path a little ways. It's turning around and going the other way. So this gospel, says the Apostle Peter, or says the Apostle Paul, is a gospel that goes the wrong way. It goes the opposite way of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what the salvation, the gospel is all about. What He's done, what you, how you are blessed by Him. To pervert that gospel is to make it about you. Is to make it about what you accomplish, what you do. And that's, and that's a dangerous path to walk. Now notice again, Paul doesn't say to his readers that they're listening to a, a, a new religion, a new God, a, a new Savior. He, he understands that these liars that have come to Galatia, they're not, they're not saying to the people, Christianity is wrong. You've got to be Muslim or you've got to be Buddhist. or you, 
They're not asking his hearers to leave the faith. They're at least no longer to identify as Christians. That's not what, he's, what they're doing. That, that, this is the, the, the far worse deceit of the devil. Is that he says, listen to a gospel that isn't gospel anymore. This is a common event in the history of the church, by the way. This happens a lot. Think about Ezekiel 34 and the words of our Lord there uh, to the false prophets, the false shepherds of Israel. Or, or listen uh, to Paul's use of those words, Paul's use of Ezekiel 34 in Acts chapter 20 in the verses 29 to 31. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders. He's leaving. He believes he's going to die and that he will never see them again. And so he's saying goodbye for the last time. And he says to them, among other things, be shepherds of the watch. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. For I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples. Paul there says to the Ephesian elders, be wary, be wary, because it's not the, the threat that you face is not so much on the outside as it is on the inside. The greatest damage done is not by those that are easily identified as false teachers. It is from those who sound good but are in fact savage wolves. Understand that behind all of that is the devil and his lies. Think about Jesus' words in John 8 verse 44 about how the devil is the father of lies. And think about how Peter warns in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 to be on your guard because the devil roars like a prowling lion seeking whom he might devour. And think about Revelation 12 where the devil is presented as a dragon spewing forth water, trying to swamp, trying to overwhelm, trying to drown the church with his lies. That's an apt description, isn't it? That's a a fitting description of the world in which we live. We are constantly being flooded by lies. Big lies, obvious lies, and little lies, subtle lies. And it's the subtle lies. It's the devil when he comes as an angel of light. It is the devil when, when, as my mother used to say, he wears wooden shoe socks. You used to wear socks or certain kinds of socks inside of wooden shoes. Well, the devil doesn't wear wooden shoes when he comes at you. You can hear him coming then. He only wears those klomsokias, those socks that you wear in clogs. Because you can't hear him coming. Because you can't see him coming. And thus the Apostle Paul reminds us that as church, we are to be ever vigilant, discerning the truth from the lie, the prophet of God from the prophet of the devil, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ from the twisted and perverted bad news that is packaged as gospel. No matter how nicely packaged it might be, it is devastating, it is terrible, it is destructive. You think about Joel Osteen and the lies that that man spews every day. Despicable, wicked lies. Man, he looks good. People like him. 15,000 people every Sunday listen to him preach. Millions watch his program. And he lies in everything he says. 
How can it be that the church falls prey to such deceit and dishonesty? What we need to understand is that we have to battle to remain faithful. We have to stand fast against such temptations. We need to constantly ask ourselves, who has our ear? Who, who are we listening to? Whose ideas are, are being planted in the soil of our hearts? This is true for all of us. It's especially, if I can say that, true of our young people. Young people, you are the, the, the developing, the, the growing pillars and bricks of the church. And, and, your, and your mortar, I'm going to see how long I can extend this analogy, is being set. It's being, it's being established. It's still soft. So in that softness, what, what's being brought in? What are you listening to? What are you hearing? How much of social media are you consuming versus how much of devotions are you doing? How much are you listening to, to the world according to TikTok versus the world according to God? We need to ask ourselves, who's got our attention? And then ask ourselves, by what standard are we judging their word? You see, it's not just about listening to pious podcasts and that sort of thing. There's lovely, powerful, and good stuff available to us in such abundance in the technology that we have available to us today. But there's also the possibility of of lies, of, of dishonesty, deceit. Years ago, we had a family in the church that left us and left us for the most bizarre theological system you could ever imagine. I couldn't begin to explain to you this, this, this bizarre theology. And how does that happen? It, it happens with the best of intentions, listening, wanting to learn more, yet hearing the wrong voice, hearing the wrong speaker, hearing a deceitful leader, not a faithful preacher, a faithful preacher that preaches alone the, the glorious good news of the gospel. That's how our text ends, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul has reminded us that, that the gospel that we have been given is never to be rejected and it is never to be a, a perverted. But then he says in the end, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Those are some extremely harsh words. Those are some heavy, heavy words. Now having said that, there are some mitigating elements to that that may help us understand or appreciate what Paul's saying. First of all, Paul certainly includes himself in this anathema, in this declaration of judgment. Paul says, even if I preach a gospel other than what you've accepted, then let me be eternally condemned. And even if it were an angel, he says, even an angel, Paul's saying, this isn't a matter of of personal preference. This isn't a matter of, of the right school or the right ethnicity. Even if an angel preached the wrong message, then let him be condemned. So that indeed Paul is not saying that the people who are troubling the Galatian church are uniquely and specifically bad people who should be eternally condemned. He says anyone, anyone who fails to preach the gospel faithfully, let him be eternally condemned. 
Now let that penetrate into your heart for a moment as it ought to penetrate into mine. For here surely is first of all a word to preachers, to those who stand before the congregation and open God's word. Here's a serious and severe warning to anyone who would stand before God's people and say, thus says the Lord, if they do not speak the word of God, they forfeit their eternity. Those who stand before the Lord and lie to His people bring themselves into the severest judgments against their God. Here's a warning for preachers and for office bearers who are called to manage and minister to the preacher. They ought to make sure that from the pulpit only ever the good news of the gospel comes. But here's also a word about the gospel. Here's the thing that bothers Paul. It's not some finer point of doctrine. It's not some minor issue. It's the very heart. It's the very good news. It's the very beating heart of what it is that we believe about what Jesus has done, about our salvation in Him, about His grace towards us. This is why Paul's so passionate in this passage. This is why Paul is so concerned about his hearers. This is why we ought to be passionately concerned about the gospel every day. Because it's precious. And because God values its proclamation. That doesn't mean we can run around casting anathemas on this preacher or that, saying, well, that guy's going to hell for sure neither should we miss the passion of the apostle or of the spirit who inspired him to write these words. God wants his people to know what he's done for them. He wants them to be amazed and encouraged. He wants them to be sustained and comforted. He wants them to hear always and forever that they are loved, that they are eternally saved because of what He's done on their behalf. He wants them to always and forever rest, not in anything they've done, but only in what He's done. And that ought to inspire us, that ought to encourage us, that ought to move and motivate us, that God is so passionate that we should hear the good news of the gospel, that He not only sends preachers to us to proclaim that glory, but that He holds them accountable in the most severe way for their failure to proclaim what is His good news of the gospel when they, for, when they instead pro- proclaim a perverted or different gospel. And that ought to inspire the way that we come to church. It ought to inspire the way we come to church next Sunday when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. What does God want you to know in that table? What does He want you to know in that bread and that wine? He wants you to know that He's done it all. He wants you to know that your sins are forgiven. He wants you to know that you're eternally secure. He wants you to be absolutely certain. He wants you to be amazed. He wants you to put away any self-righteousness, any ability in yourself or confidence in your own ability. He wants you instead to hear again about how amazing His love for you is so that you might leave this place saying, Behold, what a God, what a great and glorious Lord. Is that what we come to church to hear? Is that what we expect to hear when we come to hear the gospel proclaimed? Is that what we expect when we come to feast upon His grace? Is that what we want to do? 
People of God, it's so easy for us to just go through the motions. It's so easy for us to come to church checking off the box. I went to church. What's the problem? I went to church. I did it. But what you do is not relevant, is it? It's what Jesus has done. And do you, do you hear the good news of the gospel? Does it penetrate your heart? Does it stir in you a joy? Does it make you desirous of praising this God, this glorious, good, and gracious God? We need to hear the good news of the gospel as passionately as the people of Galatia did, as passionately as Paul wanted them to hear it. Paul, like a parent, says to them in this text, what were you thinking? Why would you surrender? Why would you surrender the good news of the gospel for some cheap knockoff that's not good news at all, but bad news? That has to be a question that we challenge ourselves to hear every day, keeping ourselves forever focused and confident in this truth that there is only one version of the gospel and it is the glorious good news of grace in Jesus Christ. Let's thank him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it's a tough word that you bring to us today, a heavy word, a word full of judgment, a word full of astonishment and sorrow, a word that can challenge us, Lord, May it challenge us rightly. Not to become a people, Lord, that cast anathemas here, there, and everywhere and look down our noses at other Christians. And, but help us to be just as passionate for the gospel as Paul was here. Help us to say to, to those that may be straying to the right or to the left, why are you deserting your God? And help us ourselves, Lord, to routinely, regularly examine our own hearts. Help us to ask ourselves, am I trusting myself? Am I resting in my own good works? Am I self-righteous? Or am I standing fast upon the foundation of salvation in Jesus Christ alone? Help us, Lord, to answer that well. And may your gospel forever be preached from this pulpit to your people in this place. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.